Welcome to the Point Church Teaching Podcast. I'm Corey Ickes, one of the pastors here at Point Church in Fort Liberty. We seek to exalt Jesus and equip the saints through expositional preaching and teaching. I hope you're encouraged and uplifted from this week's teaching. Hey, good morning. My name's Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and uh, we're, man, we're glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us, um, it's, it's a privilege for us to have you. Uh, and, and we just say welcome to the family. Uh, this is, we consider Point Church uh, the way the New Testament considers the church, which is family. And, uh, and so we're glad you're here. And uh, one thing that we want you to know about us as a family is that Jesus is king. And, uh, and that we surrender to him. And he is the Lord of not just our Sundays, but he's the Lord of our everyday. And, uh, and so this uh, series that we're in the Gospel of Mark, a journey through the book of Mark, I'm going to need some audience assistance. Uh, we have two questions, two primary questions that we're answering as we go through the book of Mark. What are they? See how good you are or how bad we are. All right. Who is Jesus? That's right. Second question. Well, yeah, that's right. What's it take or what's it look like to follow Jesus? So, uh, so who is Jesus and what does it look like to follow him? And remember, we're, this is a dynamic uh, a gospel account. Mark writes in full action. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't often uh, go into a lot of detail of what Jesus said, but just demonstrates and, and describes what Jesus did. Now, Jesus spoke through his actions. Now, obviously, he did a lot of speaking, uh, but Mark wants us to see kind of in in real time and in live action uh, how Jesus was. And so we're in Mark chapter 3 this morning. So if you want to turn in your copy of the scriptures with me, I'm going to pray. And we want to invite the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, right? Because the the truth is we need God to speak through his word to us, right? And so we're going to do that now. Father, we pray now this is your word, not mine. Uh, We are your people. God, we need your Holy Spirit to speak to us through the gospel of Mark. And so, Lord, we want to lay down our... our merits, we want to lay down our, uh, our, our self-righteousness, we want to la- lay down kind of what we uh, think we know, and we want to invite you to speak to us, whether this is the first time that this person has ever heard Mark, or if this is the thousandth time that we flip to Mark 3, God, would you move in power among us? We need you, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 3, looking at who is Jesus and what does it look like to follow him. But before we read the text, I I need you to to think about, uh, maybe it's a book that you've read or a a movie that you've seen in which there is like a a thriving kingdom, okay? Uh, And and in many stories, many accounts, I'm thinking of a few, whether it's uh, Lord of the Rings or uh, Chronicles of Narnia, or you can kind of fill in. Like, uh, I'm not a very well-read person, so that kind of uh, is like my uh, range. But I want you to think about those kingdoms and when they're flourishing and they're, they're teeming with life, right? I mean, it's, everything's colorful. There's often a waterfall that just seems to be a, a thing. 
All is, is good, right? Things are uh, bountiful. There's safety. The, the, uh, the citizens are thriving. But what transpires when the evil ruler uh, or the evil army comes in, right? All of a sudden, the scene changes. And you've, you've got uh, where in place of teeming colors and, and beautiful waterfalls, things are dry. Like, all right, Lion King, okay? Think about that, right? When, when the, the evil brother takes over, I mean, it goes from lush pride lands to just cracked desert floor. All waters are dried up. Chronicles of Narnia, the, a, a beautiful lush uh, kingdom that's turned to a frozen tundra, right? Like the, 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 the white witch has, has taken and has placed the, the people under captivity and oppression. And, and the, the truth of the matter is that in our hearts, because of sin, because of rebellion, we find ourselves captive. We find ourselves made to thrive in a kingdom, a lush kingdom, a, a kingdom that is good, right, and perfect. And yet we find ourselves in a desolate, bleak place. But, but, the Messiah King, who's been prophesied from old, he comes, and he comes to establish a new kingdom. He comes to set the captives free. And so today, we're, when we look at who Jesus is, this is our big takeaway. So if you fall asleep or if I black out, like you can write, write this down and understand that this is the primary thrust of the sermon. And that is that the Lord Jesus, that he is the Messiah King who's established God's kingdom by binding the enemy and setting the captives free. He is the Messiah King. He's the one prophesied from old that would come establish the kingdom of God by binding the enemy and setting the captives free. And this is really glorious good news. This is good news if you uh, are in a place in which you feel currently as you are taken captive. Maybe, uh, maybe whatever it is that is oppressing you has got you in bondage and you feel strapped and there is seemingly no exit or end game in sight. I need you to know that the Lord Jesus is bigger and more powerful than what binds you. He came to take and bind the enemy and set the captives free. But what I want us to see is that we've been seeing this progression through Mark. So we're only in chapter 3. But from Mark 1 to the time that the Lord Jesus shows up onto the scene. That immediately. Remember John the baptizer looks and says. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of man. There's this pointing that John the Baptist does. That this is the mighty one. In the Old Testament, the mighty one is the one who sets captives free. The mighty one is the one who comes and sets justice forth, where injustice is reigning. Because of sin, because of the fall from Genesis 3, we know that the enemy, Satan himself, is ruling the air. And that his kingdom, uh, God's kingdom that was good, right, and perfect, that was lush and beautiful and teeming with life in, the, uh, in full harmony with God himself, with mankind had harmony. And when sin entered the world, bleak, desolate captivity 
oppression. But we see Jesus comes onto the scene, and if you consider his baptism, remember what transpires at his baptism. But as, he's, as John the Baptist is baptizing him, it tells us that the heavens are rent open, and the Father speaks, and the Holy Spirit descends down. This is my Son, who I am well pleased. But listen, what Isaiah prophesied, on that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is speaking to the Messiah. And later, to make your name known to who? Your adversaries. And that the nations might tremble at your presence. See, even at the baptism, there was a, within Jesus' new identity, as the Father has spoken, this is my Son, that even when the heavens split, it was fulfilling Scripture that the one, the King, the Messiah, who's going to right all the wrongs, He is here And it's Jesus of Nazareth. It goes on. And so very quickly in Mark, uh, we see that Jesus, it's a very brief account uh, uh, in which he is tempted by Satan himself. That As soon as he's baptized, the Holy Spirit takes him into the wilderness, into the desert, and he is tempted. Matthew 4 gives us a greater account of that temptation. But what we see transpire is that the Lord Jesus is able to bind the enemy. He's able to overthrow the temptations of the enemy. The very temptations that, that the enemy prevailed in in tempting Israel through in the book of Deuteronomy, Jesus endures and perseveres as they truer and better because he is the Messiah. And we go on and very quickly after that in Mark 1, we see Jesus heals an unclean spirit. And this is what happens when, when, when Jesus encounters the man with the unclean spirit. The unclean spirit speaks and says, he says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, the Messiah King is in the room. And everybody knows it, including the enemy's demons. And the Lord Jesus, with the power of his word, speaks and tells the demon to get out. And the crowd goes, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. You see, the Messiah is on the scene. And in order to establish the kingdom of God, he must begin to dethrone the oppressive rule. Jesus heals the paralytic. And uh, as Josh, who preached this text a couple of weeks ago, made a great uh, distinction to help us understand that in this day and age, uh, often uh, physical ailments were often associated, not every time, but associated with, uh, with basically bondage and being a captive to this ailment. And we see the Lord Jesus not only heals the man, but he forgives his, his sins. You see, because the Messiah King, when he comes, he is dethroning the present ruler. 1 John 3, verse 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So I want us to understand very clearly this morning, who is Jesus? He is the Messiah King who is coming to establish the kingdom of God. 
And, and in order to do that, he must vanquish the kingdom of the enemy. That's, what we, that's, that's our takeaway. This is what we're going to see today in the text of Scripture. As Jesus is ushering in the kingdom, he begins to overthrow the rule of Satan. And listen to this. He also begins to rattle the cage of the religious. Now, it's very interesting that somehow the kingdom of the enemy and the religious often find themselves kind of on like the same team when it comes to Jesus. May that not be true of us. So let's jump in and read the text. I think I've got verse uh, 22 on the screen. I'm going to back up and read verse 20 because I want us to set the stage and understand what is at play. So I'm going to start in verse 20 of chapter 3. So Jesus has just called the 12 disciples and it says, Then he went home and the crowd gathered Again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, picking up in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. Verse 26, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first Binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. All right, so what's happening in this this text? What's happening kind of in this uh, passage that Mark is giving us? Josh mentioned it last week. We called it the Markian sandwich, right? We've got this account of of Jesus being accused of being demon-possessed. It's kind of the middle portion of the sandwich, but just prior to, we have this account where it says it's like transitionary. It's like they went home, the crowd showed up, they're basically pulsing at them, they couldn't even eat, and it says Jesus' family went to like lay hands on him, and like to seize him, to take control of him, which is odd. Because Jesus, the Messiah, the one establishing the kingdom, doesn't need to be seized. So this is odd, this is off, and, 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 and then the bottom half, after this main account, we see another uh, story uh, Josh preached last week about the family members beating on the door where Jesus was staying with the disciples. They're trying to seize him again, and what does the Lord Jesus say? Hey guys, uh, who is my mother, my brother, and my sister, but those who do the will of God? So we've got these two kind of offset family dynamics, anybody? Have family dynamics? Yeah. So did Jesus. But it's being couched over this account of Jesus being strongly accused of being possessed by Satan. So the family, uh, they're, they're battling unbelief or at least struggling to understand who Jesus really is and what in the world he's doing. And, for, and to their credit, 
the, the highlights that we just took from baptism to the healing of the man with a, a demon to the paralytic, all the way, like that journey, those events were ruffling feathers. The Lord Jesus was, as I said earlier, rattling the cage and, and beginning to make some noise to the point that the scribes, the ones that accuse him of being possessed by a demon, they actually came from Jerusalem. They came from out of town to come inspect and really evaluate this one Jesus of Nazareth. And so his family may have, been, there may have just been a level of protection like, hey, Jesus, we need to lay low. We don't know. But then the scribes, they show up from Jerusalem, and here's the thing. Here's the thing about them. They cannot deny the power that Jesus has. They don't deny the power that he has. Of all the miracles, of all the accounts. So in Matthew, the parallel account of this story in Matthew is, comes off of Jesus healing a man that was deaf and blind and mute. These guys cannot deny what Jesus has done. And so what do they do? But they begin to attribute his power, not to be the power of God, but to be the power of Satan himself. Okay, so we got family disputes. We've got scribes coming and laying forth bold, bold accusations in which they call him, he is possessed by the spirit of Beelzebub, okay? Now, that's a funky name. This is what the name means, master of the house. And this name, is, it's ancient. It, it kind of has gone through a couple of different uh, uses or, or definitions, but essentially it means master of the house or master of the house of demons. And so when they, are, when they say this one Jesus has been possessed by Beelzebub, they are referring to him being possessed and empowered by Satan, the ruler of the powers of evil. And so this is kind of the context that we're going into as we get, Jesus hasn't spoken at this point, He's just, he is just present, he has heard the accusations, but I love it, I love how Jesus responds, it just, he invites them, he says, hey, he calls them to him, because he's a teacher, and that's what teachers, rabbis did in that day, he calls them to him, and then he very calmly, very simply puts forth two parables. Two stories that, that begin to, uh, to essentially deconstruct the accusation. And so I want us to see the first of these parables. And the first one is a parable of an imploding kingdom. Okay, A kingdom that's actually de being destroyed from the inside out. And so the accusation is this one, Jesus, has actually, he's possessed by Satan, therefore, when he cast out demons, he's actually doing it by the power of Satan. And the Lord Jesus, in all of his wisdom, in all of his uh, intellect, in all of his perception of inability to read the room, the Lord Jesus speaks. And he just says very simply, how can Satan cast out Satan? As in like, hey... Like, what sense does it make for Satan to actually do all this effort to cast out Satan? Like, clearly, you know, as speaking to intelligent people, you must understand 
that if a ruler over a kingdom is simultaneously undercutting his kingdom from the inside, that it can only do one thing. It can only, it can only fall. There's no way that a kingdom divided, that Satan himself would be casting out Satan. There's no way that kingdom can ever stand. And so Jesus begins to just very simply and methodically just kind of knock the legs out from underneath of the accusation. But I want you to see and understand why, what's happening as he's knocking out the legs of the opposition, he's simultaneously demonstrating that he is the Messiah King. Because see, who's more powerful than Satan? Like if you're just a Jewish audience, who's more powerful than Satan? God. Therefore, if it's not Satan himself who's casting out Satan, who's the only other person who can cast out Satan? But God. Listen to what Isaiah says about the Messiah, the suffering servant. He says, behold, my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. This is the father speaking about the Messiah. It says, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. You see, the power in which Jesus operates is the power of God's spirit. It's the only power that is able to overthrow the power of the enemy. And so simultaneously as he's knocking out this just through logic, like, hey, your logic is busted, scribes. And by the way, the only power that I have is the power of God, a.k.a. I am God. And so in this argument, he's able to put forth that he is the king of the kingdom here to establish the kingdom to dethrone the enemy, to bind him, and to begin to, to slowly penetrate. And I just envision this picture of, if you think about uh, the, 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 the kingdom that's oppressed and it's just dark and bleak. No life. The waterfall's dried up. The people are in, sh- in shackles. And as the Lord Jesus is navigating and moving, because we know ultimately in Mark that he's moving towards the cross, but as he's moving and he's he's healing and casting out demons, and as he's battling the scribes, he is breaking chains. He is loosening the grip of the enemy. And it's like the, the path that he's walking becomes vibrant and teeming with life because he is the king. He's the Messiah. And he's establishing God's kingdom. So Jesus' work by the Spirit is proof that he's the king. The second parable that we see that the Lord Jesus uses is to describe that of a home. And that, hey, you know, like if, if I attempt to go to William Seta's house and break in, for one, that would be a gross miscalculation on my part. If you know my brother, you know why. But, because, I mean, he's going to defend his home, right? He, I mean, he's going to take me out before I, my foot hits the first step. Unless I can bind him. And again, my limit, I'm not Jesus, okay? But unless I can bind him, I can't plunder his house. I can't rummage through and, and, and touch his dogs that I know he would like. I mean, look, he just like, you touch my dogs, you're done. 
The only success I would have in plundering my brother's house is if I somehow manage to bind him up. Jesus says, like, how is the house of, like, how, how, how's it going to stand if, if the, the person inside of it is actually bound up? No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man. And then verse 27, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus has come. And this is the picture of a home invasion in which the king of the kingdom, to establish his kingdom, he is invading the home of Satan. He's binding him up demonstrating that he is more powerful than the enemy, which is demonstrating that he is indeed God. He binds him up, and then it says that he plunders his house. Envision this idea of of God, uh, Jesus, walking into the kingdom of the enemy and begins to bind him up, overthrowing, and then plundering and taking all the riches. And you know what the riches are? The captives. Those who are bound. He's invaded the master's house. Remember Beelzebub's name? Master of the house? The Lord Jesus is saying, hey, I actually went into Beelzebub's house. The master of the house, I went in there, I bound him, and I am plundering his house in an attempt to establish the kingdom of God. How good is that? Corey, how do we know it's the captives? Because all throughout the Old Testament, we see there is a constant cry for there to be rescue and freedom for the captives. Listen to Isaiah 49. It says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. You see, the mighty one, the one that, that John the Baptist keyed in on as Jesus walked by, he says, this is the one who's mightier than me. It's the mighty one often in the Old Testament who's portrayed as the one who is working out God's justice and who is freeing the captives. He's freeing the captives. Jesus' ability to bind the enemy and set the captives free is proof that the king of the kingdom is here and he's establishing his kingdom. Man, who is Jesus here in this text? He's the king. He's the king. What's the king doing? He is dethroning the enemy. He is undoing the oppression and the injustice that the enemy has been executing. He's now bound him up and he is plundering the house. That's the king. So, in case anybody in the room has some really watered-down version of Jesus just being some pushover, I need you to understand that he's meek. He is meek. He, he, he has great, great power and it is under great control. But he is the king no less. And he's setting the captives free. And so the people in the room, the really good news is because of our sin, we are all captive. 
But the king has come to set us free. And if there's people that have yet to experience that freedom, family, I just need you to know that it is as simple as acknowledging that you're not the king of your life and calling on him as king of your life. So, that's who Jesus is here in the text. But what does it look like to follow Jesus? And this is uh, kind of the, the last part of our text today. And to be honest with you, this is a tough portion of Scripture. So if you want to jump with me to verse 28 of chapter 3, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Jesus says, truly I say to you. So he's just, he's just knocked down the, 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 uh, uh, acu- the accusations of the scribes and, and demonstrating that he is the king. And then he very quickly issues an incredible encouragement and a striking warning. Look in verse 28. He says, truly I say to you, which is basically to be like in the prophets, that would be thus says the Lord. The prophet is speaking on the behalf of God. Jesus is speaking on the behalf of him. He basically says he amens himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, this is the word of God. I mean, he's bold because he's the king. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now listen, there is a lot of people in the room with a whole lot of experience with the church and with the Bible and has potentially heard this text and maybe applied in a number of ways, okay? But I want us to see the context. Jesus has, remember this whole account is couched by family members who are misunderstanding him. And then a brazen bunch of scribes who have gone beyond just misunderstanding or maybe just assuming the worst to accusing that the Lord Jesus is actually just filled with a demon. And so Jesus issues this incredible encouragement in which he tells us at the beginning that all sins... That all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. That that's the, the, the widespread forgiveness of God. That everybody in the room, that our sins can, they, they have been forgiven if we will call on him. But he says very clearly in this striking warning, and we see that the warning is to the scribes. But I, I, I think that it's also loud enough for the family members and the followers of Jesus who are not quite on the same page, it's at least loud enough for them to hear. Almost like a a secondary audience. To not miss the Lord Jesus. And he tells us that, that that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the one thing that cannot be forgiven. And you say, Corey, what in the world does that mean? I, there was this one time where I, I said the Lord's name by the Spirit in vain. Like, have I, have I committed this unforgivable sin? I know that often the unforgivable sin gets layered into like, hey, if, 
I mean, just weighty matters in which people are, are labeled this in the church. And, and I'm just here to tell you that that is not, that is not the implication of this text of Scripture. Okay, this is not for Corey to be like, well, you know, that guy or that... Li- Unforgivable sin. Let me clap the dust off of my sandals. Or, well, that person committed this type of heinous sin. Therefore, they must be committing the unforgivable. No, 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 no. This is not. Don't, don't misunderstand the word of God. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven, he says, because they were saying he had an unclean spirit. This is what they're saying. They are accusing or, or misunderstanding judging the work of the Spirit for the work of the devil. So the ones that are guilty, the ones that are erring, and and I I don't even know if he's saying this as in that these scribes are too far gone, but there is a stern warning that those who would continue to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, those that would never repent of speaking against, that believing that the work of the Holy Spirit is actually the work of the devil, that there is no place for repentance because they never even get to an acknowledgement of a need for repentance. So listen to this quote because this was really helpful for me in my study. Uh, David Platt says this, in attributing the work of the Spirit to the person of Satan, which was the accusation laid down, right? That Jesus who's casting out demons in the power of the Spirit, they're attributing it to Satan himself, right? So that accusation, they were setting themselves in total opposition to the Spirit of God. The only Spirit who can draw them to salvation through repentance. Because there's only one way to salvation, and that's through repentance. So the one Spirit that can draw, that if you're saved in the room, it's because that one Holy Spirit has drawn you to repentance. But the warning is for those who have, have opposed totally that Spirit. They were rejecting even the thought of repentance. Such sin involves willful unbelief, persistent rebellion, and final denial. That, is, that, that definition helps us understand the scope of this sin. Now, all of us, family, in the room, like, all of us are, we're, we're one act of God away from rejecting Christ and being separated from Him for all of eternity, right? Like, if you understand that you've been saved by grace, that you understand that it was that act of grace, it was that uh, uh, leading by the Spirit to repentance, it was that act of God alone that has brought you into life and reconciliation and into the family of God, right? Can we agree on that? And we must understand that we are, we are that act away from being total Deniers and opposers of Jesus, apart from God. But we see in the scriptures, even in the Old Testament, right? Pharaoh himself, the, the Lord's like, hey, don't hold, don't, don't harden your heart. Let my people go, right? Don't harden my heart. Don't harden your heart, Pharaoh. And at one point, it just finally says that Pharaoh did what? Hardened his heart. He was in total opposition 
to the work of the Spirit in Exodus. So, this is a, a, a striking warning to the scribes, but I, I also believe it's a, it, again, like I said, to that secondary audience of those who were associates of Jesus that are seizing him because they're looking at him going like, man, I mean, his family's like, this guy's gone crazy, which isn't so far from the scribes going, man, he might actually be possessed for these ones that associate with Jesus, may they heed the warning to not find themselves resistant to who Jesus is and what he's doing. You say, Corey, so like, what's the takeaway? Well, so that David Platt, who, who I read the quote from earlier, he gives two very helpful reminders that I just want to give to you. First, we must avoid labeling anyone as guilty of the unforgivable sin. That is, that, is not, that is not the work of Pastor Corey. Pastor, that's not the work of believers in the room. That is not where we live. That would be to include and label anybody for a particular sin, like sometimes it's associated to suicide, that it's, it is the unforgivable. That is, we, we don't have that in Scripture. That is not there. But also, if you're in the room going, man, I wonder if I've actually committed, like, I'm, I'm concerned that I might have committed the unforgivable sin. And I just want to encourage you, friend, the fact that you have any concern at all on whether you have committed this is assurance that you have not fully rejected Jesus. Now, you might be currently rejecting him. But you have air in your lungs in this moment to stop rejecting him and actually come to him. Do you see the difference between full, total, as, as the quote said, willful unbelief, persistent rebellion, and final denial? May we not find ourselves. If you do find yourself going, hey, I'm not with him, like I'm currently rejecting him, then today be the day of salvation for you in which you cease to reject and you Receive him. Amen? Platt says that ultimate rejection of repentance and faith happens in our hearts. That, that this is primarily a function in our heart, not our lips. Which is really good news because apart from Jesus, we might say some wild and crazy stuff with our lips. Right? But praise God, it is that he changes our hearts he breaks into our hearts. That's the good news of the king of the kingdom. So how does this bear on the saints? How, like if you're in the room and you're in Jesus, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? Well, the first thing that it means is that we acknowledge him as the king of kings, the king of the kingdom. It, I mean, he, he demonstrates it so powerfully through his actions and then so effectively in his, uh, his parables against the scribes, we must acknowledge him. We must follow him, right? It's, it's not enough. I mean, the, the, the demon himself in Mark 1 acknowledged Jesus as the Lord. Did you come to destroy us? The demon himself acknowledged. It's not enough to acknowledge. We must follow. 
And, and the word tells us, the, the text that Josh preached last week, which is the passage immediately after this, when his family comes rapping on the door going, hey, where's Jesus? We have a claim on his life. He's, he's our kin. That was a big deal in, in Jewish times. Like the fact that, I mean, that family dynamic was strong. And they're rapping on the door, standing on the outside going, where's Jesus? We need to talk to him. We need to, we need to set something straight with him. And Jesus says, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? But those who do the will of God. The, the last thing that we do in following Jesus is we obey him. We obey him. And, and that, family, that, that may mean, as it did for Jesus in these accounts, that there is a resistance to family. Like your family plan, your, they might have had a plan that looked very different than the, the, the one that Jesus is calling you to. He says, the ones who are my family, the ones that are in this new kingdom family, are those who obey the will of the Father. And so we acknowledge He's the King. We follow Him, which is to give our full allegiance to Him, and we do the will of the Father. That's what it means for us to follow Him. So let us bow in prayer and close. I want you, as, as we're praying have you acknowledged Jesus as king? Is he king of your life in the room? Or are you just kind of familiar like the demons? Hey, I know who you are. I know what you can do. Or are you dropping your nets? Are you dropping the, the claim to your life and following him and seeking to obey? And then for believers in the room... Let's heed the warning that, that we don't find ourselves opposing Jesus. Remember when Peter, uh, when the Lord Jesus is talking about how he's going to die on the cross, and Peter says, oh, no, you're not. Like, this ain't going to happen. And what does he say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because your things are not on the things above. You see, even believers, we can find ourselves off track. We can find ourselves functionally opposing the will, the mission of God. It's like, hey, look, I, I don't love that person enough to tell them about Jesus. Or what they did to our country in whatever event, there's no chance I'm going there to take the gospel. Or my neighbor, I, I, my, my family member, you fill in the blank. They've wronged me so hard, so badly. There is, there is no chance for the gospel to take root here. Family, let's not find ourselves opposing the one, the king of the kingdom, who is breaking chains, who is establishing his kingdom rule. We don't want to find ourselves opposing him. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness. God, we praise you for your extravagant forgiveness. Lord, that, that I, sh I, am, I am dead to rights in my sin. Not just my past sin, but my current sin. Like, like this morning's sin. I am dead to rights. But as Paul said, I was a blasphemer. I was, I was a persecutor. I 
denied God and in his grace, in his mercy, he saw fit to save me, a sinner. That is the good news of the kingdom. This is the king of the kingdom who has bound, he has bound Satan and he is plundering the home. Lord, we praise you for your strength, for your power, for your salvation. And I pray that everybody in the room has encountered that salvation. And I pray for any brother or sister, that anybody in the room that has not, I'm going to be in the back and I would love to speak to you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to encourage you to repent of your sins, to repent of yourself and follow Jesus. Lord, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like to learn more about how you can be a part of what God is doing here at Point, connect with us at www.pointchurch.live. Thank you.